If you have your Bibles, please turn with me once again to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We began in John's Gospel chapter 3 last week as we were thinking about the doctrine of regeneration, the doctrine of the new birth. And we continue as well in John 3 again this morning. Uh, We're continuing in our series of studies, what we're calling the Golden Chain, that wonderful series, excuse me, that wonderful title that's been used in dozens of sermons and dozens of books down through the generations, the Golden Chain, to describe the order of salvation, God's saving acts in the lives of his people, and how one act inevitably leads to the next, and it all shows forth how unbreakable and how undoubtable are God's saving acts and promises and how sure and certain is God's salvation in the lives of his people. All whom the Father has given unto the Son shall in no wise be cast out. Well, we began, if you remember, with union with Christ, and then we thought about election, God's choice of certain sinners to save from the mass of fallen humanity, and then we thought about effectual calling, that supernatural summons that comes in the power of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the word that brings God's elect from death to life. And then last time, we considered regeneration, the new birth, which is really uh, the other side of the coin of effectual calling. The Lord summons dead sinners to life as his word goes forth. And that's how he does it. He summons them as his word goes forth. And what he does as the Spirit takes that word and effectually and effectively applies it to the sinner's heart is that they are born again to a new life and a living hope. That's what he does. How he does it is his word goes out. What he does is gives them new life. Lazarus, come forth, Jesus calls out, standing outside the tomb. And where once there was only death, now he comes out of the grave into newness of life. That's a picture of regeneration, of the new birth, as we mentioned before. And we said that in speaking about things like union with Christ and election, we're speaking about doctrines which, while they are entirely true, often, to our sensibilities, they're more theoretical. They're more theoretical. We don't experience our own election as it takes place in eternity past. In many ways, we don't really experience our new birth, so to speak. These early doctrines in the Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation, are not always really detectable to the senses. But their effects, the results of these saving acts, which the Lord does, they are detected, much like Jesus states here in John 3, which we'll read in just a moment. You can't see the wind, but you can feel it. You can detect it. When it blows leaves on the grass or when it rustles the tree branches, you know that the wind is about. The effects are detected. They are seen in the response of new hearts. And we call that response conversion. The word itself, conversion, simply means turning. That's all it means, turning. And classically understood, Christians have understood, rather have defined conversion as turning from sin and turning to Christ. Turning to Christ is what we call faith, and turning from, away from, sin is repentance. These are two constituent parts of conversion, and they always, 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 always go together. They're two sides of the same coin. They are intimately intertwined. Now, there's, I mention all that because there's been some debate over the years which comes first, logically. Which comes first, faith or repentance? Does one have faith first in the gospel and then repent of sin? Or does one repent first and then turn to Christ in faith? Well, no one less than Professor John Murray went so far as to argue that the two are so intertwined 
that in his own book on the Ordo Salutis, which is wonderful, a wonderful little book, in many ways it's the authoritative book on the subject, uh, Murray does not divide them at all, actually, but he refers to them always with a hyphen. He calls it faith repentance, faith hyphen repentance, faith repentance. I like Murray's position. That's basically where I'm at. Uh, Plus, you have the added fact that Murray is Scottish, so we're on very likely ground to assume that he's correct on these things. The truth is, friends, we could take these doctrines in either order. We could study faith first and then repentance, or we could switch the order. But we had to pick one, and there's too much territory to cover in just one half-hour sermon. So we're going to consider faith this morning, and Lord willing, next time, next Lord's Day, we'll consider the doctrine of repentance. Uh, There's a number of texts that we could use to consider the subject of faith. A majestic one is the one we have before us here in the wonderful third chapter of John. So let's look to it now, shall we? We'll read John 3, verses 1 through 16, and then we'll pray and ask for God's help and blessing as we study his word together. This is God's holy word. Take heed how you hear it. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. And said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, And the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. I have told you earthly things and you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us this day. May he write its eternal truth on all of our hearts. Would you pray with me? O Lord, give us eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law, wondrous things out of your word this day. Help us to see and know and believe and trust and apprehend and comprehend these truths. And then by your Holy Spirit, as we meditate upon the glorious truths of your word, the stunning beauty that it holds forth, and the marvelous good news that it is for your people. Would you seal it to our hearts? Help us today, we pray, in Jesus' name, and all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Faith. The Christian faith. Faith in Christ. These are some of the everyday phrases we use to articulate some of the core aspects of Christianity. Precious truths. 
regarding Christianity and life everlasting and the joy in the God whose glory by whom we were created. But what is faith? Is it belief? Is it a kind of naive trust? Is it just a sentimental word for believing something to be true against all our gut instincts? Is it merely wishful thinking? I I have faith that it will all work out. I I have faith that I'll meet the man of my dreams, to quote a recent film from the Hallmark Channel. Which is just an unfortunate way to spend the month of December, so take, take that what you will. Faith, friends, is another one of those good, wholesome, wonderful, biblical words that we often have to extrapolate from its popular usage in the wider culture because typically, typically, the way the culture uses the word faith and how the scripture uses the term faith are not the same thing at all. If you ask the average man on the street for a definition of faith, he'd probably say something like this, and, and I did this a number of months ago just to, just to see if my theory was true. Faith, one guy said, faith is believing something to be true despite all the evidence to the contrary. Another, another fellow said this, faith is an irrational persuasion that doesn't rest on the facts. Given those sort of cultural, offhanded, common man definitions of faith, if we were to trace that out logically, faith in God rests in the same category as faith in the tooth fairy. But that is not at all how the Holy Scripture understands the nature of faith. That's not at all how the Holy Scripture connects faith and understanding and intellect. That is not the way the Bible depicts the relationship between rationality and faith. So five things that I want for us to see from our text today. Five things. Two things on what faith is not. What faith is not. By way of introduction. By way of setting up our understanding of the gift of faith in the Ordo Salutis. And then three things on what faith is. Drawn especially from our passage in John's Gospel as Jesus encounters Nicodemus. What faith is not... And then what faith is. Biblically speaking, according to scripture, what faith is not. And then what faith is. And so the first thing I want for us to see is that faith is not irrational. Faith is not mere wishful thinking. Some of you are fans. Some of you are students of church history. You might remember St. Anselm's famous slogan, Credo ut intelliam. Credo ut intelliam. I believe in order to understand. I believe in order that I might understand. Or The phrase often gets paraphrased, faith-seeking understanding. Scripture teaches, perhaps most famously in Romans chapter 1, it says that apart from the miracle of the new birth, our understanding, our interpretations about the world, about the, the basic nature of reality and the fundamental meaning of existence, those notions, apart from the new birth, will always be distorted and faulty. We will read the facts, we will analyze the world, we will, we will ascertain the created order, and what does Romans 1 say? We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. As Paul puts it in Romans 1, verse 18 and following, we will do that 100% of the time. That actually, that actually is the height. That, that is the apex of irrationality. To take the truth, to ascertain the truth, and then to suppress it in unrighteousness. But the key, or at least one key effect, of God's giving the new birth to sinners is like Paul on the Damascus Road, the Holy Spirit gives us illumination and the scales fall from our eyes so that we may see with new eyes the truth as it really is. 
Ephesians 1 verse 17 makes that clear. God gives us wisdom and he gives us revelation. The fundamental blindness of our natural condition, our fallen sinful condition, that blindness is shattered. The light comes streaming in and we see truly and rightly and really for the first time. In other words, God plants faith in us. He works faith in us so that now we begin to make sense of reality in a new and better way. God gives us new, new lenses, if you like, those of you who, like me, have to wear glasses, to see the world correctly for the first time, whereas once we were blind and at the very least distorted and couldn't make sense of anything, God gives us new lenses, and upon putting those on, on our vision, which was formerly darkened and utterly obscured prior to that, in the lens of the new birth and in the lens of Scripture, we see clearly for the first time. One man put it like this, By faith we understand. It is not irrational. It is rationality redeemed and restored and reordered. Close quote. In studying for this passage, one of the commentators that I was reading, he recounted a story of Jonathan Edwards. And really, Edwards gets to the heart of it when he describes his own transformation after the new birth. Here's what, here's what Edwards said. Let me read to you a snippet of his recounting. He writes, the appearance of everything was altered. There seemed to be, as it were, a calm, sweet cast or appearance of divine glory in almost everything. God's excellency, his wisdom, his purity and love seemed to appear in everything. And scarce anything among all the works of nature was so sweet to me as thunder and lightning. Formerly nothing had been so terrible to me. Before, I used to be uncommonly terrified with thunder and to be struck with terror when I saw a thunderstorm arising. But now, on the contrary, it rejoiced me to view the clouds and see the lightning play and hear the majestic and awful voice of God's thunder, which oftentimes was exceedingly entertaining, leading me to sweet contemplations of my great and glorious God. Close quote. You see, Edward sees the world with new eyes. He sees what the world truly is and who God rightly is. Edwards is saying that faith, far from being mere wishful thinking and far from being irrational, no, faith enables him to understand things as they really and truly are. Faith is not irrational. It is rationality redeemed. Rationality redeemed. That's the first thing for us to see here. But then secondly, a second thing regarding what faith is not, faith, saving faith is not mere knowledge or assent to truths. It is not mere knowledge or assent to truths. We're choosing our words carefully here. It's not merely that. Faith absolutely, certainly must entail knowledge of truth. It must entail assent to truth. It must entail assent to the doctrines we proclaim. But it must be more than that. Faith is not merely a matter of knowledge or truth or agreeing to the truthfulness of God's promises. To, to know the truth and believe that the truth is true and reliable and factual and correct is not enough. And this is where we must meet Nicodemus. And this is the condition in which we find him as he comes to Jesus that night in John chapter 3. Remember, this man is the teacher of Israel. Not merely a teacher of Israel, but the teacher of Israel, Jesus calls him. He knows the scripture. This is a learned man. He is not uninformed. As we said last week, imagine this man to be something like the nation's greatest 
seminary professor. This man knows his scriptures through and through. He knows his doctrine. He knows his history. He knows the ways of the Lord. He knows the covenant history of Israel. He knows the law of God. This man has observed Jesus' ministry, and he has concluded, as we see in John 3, a number of facts that are true about Jesus. Jesus was a teacher sent from God. Yeah. And yet, Nicodemus is still lacking. Later on in the New Testament, James chapter 2, verse 19 speaks of this. It's what we might call real yet inadequate faith. You remember that verse? You believe in God. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder or tremble. Remember the context of the point that James is getting at there in his epistle. Folks in his audience who boasted in their theological orthodoxy without demonstrating any fruits of saving faith. He's comparing them to demons. To demons. Except he says, (laughs) at least they have enough sense to shudder, to tremble at the reality, the truths that they know to be true. And James is saying, you believe those same facts. And unlike the demons, you're entirely oblivious to how much danger you're in. They know their peril. You don't even have that much sense about you. Parents and grandparents, there's a word for us. How tempting it can be to be satisfied with the fact that our children or grandchildren are literate in their Bible, that they're knowledgeable in all its facts, that they are moral and ethical in their behavior, and yet are not born again. Uh, Yes, of course, you and I both know, as we, we spent at length discussing last week, last Lord's Day, we know there's nothing we can do to manufacture the new birth. God only, God the only sovereign, gives hearts of flesh. But God works through means, yes, How we need to come after their heart, to call them to faith, and to summon them to come to Christ. Frankly, how easy it is for our children to assume the same, right? Boys and girls, kids, you might think you're moral, you do the right thing, you're faithful in attending church, you're here all the time, you're here morning, you're here evening, you're here in Sunday school, you come to your Wednesday night catechism classes, you know a lot about the scriptures, you know a lot about the Bible, you know a lot about the truth of Jesus Christ. Some of you could probably put some of us grown-ups to shame. You know the stories of Scripture. You could tell us about Adam and Eve in the garden and Moses in the burning bush and Joseph in Egypt. And you could tell us about the life and ministry of Jesus. You could tell us about the conversion of Saul. You could tell us about the missionary adventures that Paul went on in those days and the growth of the New Testament. You could tell us all these facts and data of the Scripture. You know much about the Lord. But do you know Him? Not merely about Him. Boys and girls, do you love God? Do you love the Savior? Do you believe his word and do you trust in his son? Do you love Christ, not merely know a lot of things about Christ? Only that is saving faith. Do you love Christ? Do you trust in him? And you must have it. You must have that saving faith. Well, okay, fine, you say. If we need to pray for more and insist that our children have more than a mere intellectual awareness, or more than a mere assent to the truth, if that's, we must have more than that, fine. Then what is saving faith? What is this saving faith for which we are praying, for which we are longing, for which we are seeking? Well, faith is not irrational. That was the first thing. Faith is not mere intellectual assent. That's the second thing. Then what is it? Well, praise God, Jesus himself provides for us a variety of answers in the passage before us today. So let's look to the third thing. First we saw what faith is not, but now for our latter half, three things. 
what faith is. What faith is. Look with me again at verse 3. Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. When he says kingdom, Jesus there, when he says kingdom, he's not referring to some sort of coded reference to the end times. No, he simply means citizenship in God's domain. Membership in God's family. Dwelling with God. It has begun. It's it's been inaugurated in Jesus' first coming, though it's not yet complete until he returns again. But that kingdom, nevertheless, is present now. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus that he will never, ever, ever see that kingdom unless he's born again. As one man put it, in other words, the third thing for us to see here is saving faith is not natural. Saving faith is not natural. We do not have the capacity innately in and of ourselves to believe savingly. Yes, we learn facts naturally. We learn data, data naturally in our own native capacity. But not this. Saving faith is a product of the saving, regenerating work of a sovereign God. You know John chapter 6, verse 44? No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Or way back in John chapter 1, in his glorious, beautiful prologue, John 1, verses 12 and 13, to all who received him, speaking of Jesus, to who, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Those who receive the great blessing of adoption into the family of God, the the legal rights to the family name and the family inheritance, they are those, John says, who believe in Christ's name, who trust Jesus. So, those who are born of God, what do they do? Well, there seems to be a family trait, according to Scripture, a, a family tendency, one of many tendencies, actually, an inevitable tendency, for those who are born in this family line. And one of those tendencies is they believe. Faith is the result of the new birth. You know, it's interesting. Scripture, the the, the analogies that Scripture uses in birth and adoption. Uh, Adoption is a reality that can often hit very close to home. We, We adopt a child, and he or she becomes legally an heir, a member of our household, His name, her name, becomes the family's name. The family's name is put upon him or her. What we cannot do is change that child's child's genetic inheritance from his or her biological family. Their status legally has shifted. They are in a new family now. But, you know, if dad was a red-headed Irish man and mom was a red-headed Irish woman, it doesn't matter if you were adopted into a family of Ethiopian royalty... Those adopted children are probably going to turn out looking red-haired and Irish. Nature remains, but the status changes. In terms of human adoption, nature remains, but the status changes in human adoption. But the glorious thing is, in God's economy, when once alienated sinners are adopted into his family and legally called child of God, not only do they get a change of status, but they also receive a change of nature. Humanly, we can change a child's legal status, but we can't do anything to alter their DNA. The Lord, however, does alter the natures of his children that he adopts into his family. He gives them that new legal status, and then, if you like, he changes their spiritual DNA. We are born of God. 
We are passive and he is active in the giving of that new heart and that regeneration. He is the one who brings about the birth, not we ourselves. And so we must look to the Lord alone to grant this kind of saving faith. But then that brings to a second thing that we need to say about saving faith, which is equally important. Saving faith is indeed a work of God's grace. It is not natural. It is supernatural. But on the other hand, it demands human responsibility. And so the fourth thing for us to see here is that saving faith entails both God's sovereignty and human responsibility. That's the fourth thing to see here. To put it very simply, almost painfully blunt, almost painfully obvious, we must acknowledge that God doesn't believe for us. We must believe. That onus is on us. Notice in the conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus tells him, you must be born again, Nicodemus. And and then flabbergasted Nicodemus, as he's stumbling and stammering for a response, he retorts, how can these things be, Jesus? He doesn't understand. There must be something for me to do. It's all God? Yes, you must be born again. You must be born from above. But then look at chapter 3, verses 14, 15, and 16. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Believe in me and be saved. The Apostle Paul makes much the same point in Romans 10 verse 9, does he not? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Friends, we have no excuse for a passive, nonchalant shrugging when faced with the summons of the gospel. Well, I I, I guess if God wants me to believe, he'll, he'll make it happen. I guess God will believe for me. No, Scripture presents us with both divine sovereignty and human agency. We are not marionettes, and the Lord is not the cosmic puppet master. Our own Westminster Confession of Faith even speaks on this, on God's Uh, eternal decree in that third chapter. It speaks of the reality that those who are predestined, those who are elect, those who are chosen of God, have an impetus to obey the gospel. You can follow along with me if you want. I wanted to read you that paragraph from Westminster Confession, chapter 3. It's in the back of your hymnals on page 850 if you wanted to follow along, but it's Westminster Confession, chapter 3, section 8. I love how it, it handles this doctrine so tenderly, so pastorally, as we're thinking about the doctrine of election and the doctrine of predestination, and yet the the notion of saving faith as it flows from that. Here's what it says, Westminster Confession 3, section 8. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care, that men, attending the will of God revealed in his word, and yielding obedience thereunto, may from the certainty of their effectual vocation, their effectual calling, be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation, abundant comfort to all that sincerely obey the gospel. Faith means come to Jesus and believe. We must do it, and no one will do it for you. Your grandparents can't do it for you, boys and girls. Your mother and father can't do it for you. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is your faith that must be exercised. But as you do that, 
As you do exercise that faith, you will soon see that the very faith you exercise has been the supernatural gift of God, the Holy Spirit, all along. So, faith is not irrational. Faith is not mere intellectual assent. Saving faith is not natural. It is a thing of divine sovereignty. Fourth, saving faith also entails human responsibility. But then finally, saving faith is inescapably personal. Come to me, and I will give you rest, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, he says. Come to me. Do not merely assent to propositions or facts or truth claims concerning me. Yes, do that. But more than that, call out to Christ. Embrace Christ by faith. Trust him. Trust him. Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3.16 that he must believe in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Greek there could also be legitimately translated as into. Nicodemus, you must believe into me. And when you do, the faith that you exercise, the faith you exercises brings you into a personal and permanent bond with the Lord Jesus. Leon Morris, a scholar who's respected all over the world for his work on the Gospel of John, he said this, faith... Faith for the Apostle John is an activity which takes men right out of themselves and makes them one with Jesus. Saving faith is a profound and precious truth. It's something we ought to ponder and dwell on and meditate over again and again and again. That by faith you are taken out of yourself and you're made one with Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Son of man and Son of God who has borne your sin and the one who ever lives to make intercession for you. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Elsewhere, our our larger catechism puts it like this, almost, almost lyrically. Justifying faith is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God whereby he, being convinced of his sin and his misery and of the disability in himself and all other creatures to recover him out of his lost condition, he not only assents to the truth of the promises of the gospel, listen, but receives and rests upon Christ and his righteousness, therein held forth for the pardon of sin and for the accepting and accounting of his person, righteous in the sight of God for salvation. The very gift that you, the very thing that you must exercise, brothers and sisters, you must assent to the truth claims of Christ. You must come to Christ by faith and trust in Him, but that very faith that you must exercise, that outstretched hand that trusts in Christ truthfully and really, the very exercising of that faith is a gift in of itself, is it not? What do dead men exercise? Dead men exercise nothing. God must give the gift of faith, and then we must exercise it trusting in Him by faith. Alone. This is, this is what we pray for our children, isn't it? Not only that they would know Bible content and maybe even be able to memorize portions or, or beat their friends at sword drills and grow up moral and ethical and godly and understanding and for all that they achieve and that they would never cross the threshold into faith. And if that were the case, it was all for naught. No. In addition to all of that, surely we must pray that they would rest all their weight on Christ Jesus. And we must do the same. Our children and grandchildren, and, and dare I say that the covenant children of this congregation to whom you're not blood-related, 
They need to see you, brothers and sisters, they need to see you resting on Christ Jesus and staking all your faith in him and on him. And here's the challenge for us. Remember how Paul says in Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then what else does Paul go on to say? How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And Paul concludes, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. In other words, my friends, in addition to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, making the word effectual and drawing sinners to himself as they hear it, that truth The fact that he uses the word to draw sinners to himself, that truth presupposes that they are hearing the word. Faith comes by hearing. God uses means to impart saving faith to his people. People need to hear the words of life. Therefore, the church must proclaim the gospel. That's why we do what we do. And as we said a few weeks ago, it's not because ministers love to hear themselves talk. God forbid, that's never the case But we labor and belabor these points and we labor and belabor over the exposition of Scripture because we believe that the imparting of the truth of Scripture is the means. These are the words of life and these are the means by which God draws sinners to himself. People need to hear the words of life. The church must proclaim the gospel. And so if we're yearning that neighbors and children would find life everlasting in Christ, but we do not tell them the urgent and loving summons of Christ to come unto him, If we do not tell, then they will not hear and they shall not respond. What other outcome could we expect? And so, my friends, in a holy and trusting boldness, as we think about this glorious doctrine of faith, the gift of faith that God gives to his regenerated people, in a holy and trusting boldness, let us tell forth Christ, even while, even while we plead with the Lord that he would grant the new birth and that he would impart saving faith in the hearts of sinners. Let's keep on pleading. Let's keep on preaching. Let's keep on telling. Let's keep on praying. For God is pleased to use these very means to bring his people to himself. Shall we pray? Father, we do praise you for the good news that salvation belongs to the Lord. Thank you for the gift, the gift of saving faith. One thing that we, a thing that we cannot manufacture, yet we must have. A thing that we cannot produce, but we must Reach out to you in that trusting faith, gripping hold of Christ for that salvation that we need. And we ever pray that you would draw all of your own, all of your children to yourself. And that the knowledge of you, Lord, would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We pray that you would seal your word and seal your truth to our hearts this day. For our everlasting joy and for your everlasting glory. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.